Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Space Talk. I'm your host, Athena Brensberger, and I hope this episode finds you doing well today, or maybe in the future and you're checking out this episode. Welcome, welcome. We're going to be talking a lot about pulsars today, uh, which I realize we haven't gone into actually uh, here on Space Talk. If you're new to this show, this show is literally what the name sounds like. It's a place where we all get to chat about everything that has to do with space, space exploration, including rocket science, astronomy, and astrophysics. And we get to bring guests on occasionally, every now and then. And speaking of guests, we have got a special guest, Dr. Kirby Runyon, joining us next Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. Central Time. So a little bit of an adjustment there. We just had to do a little bit of rescheduling. Um, I'll actually be doing a bit of traveling, and so uh, just made a lot more sense to be able to uh, commit that to that time, because I know we're going to end up going into a full, long interview, um, an episode. I, I think it, prepare for a pretty late night that night if you'll be joining us. Um, so again, 6.30 p.m. Central Time uh, next Tuesday um, here on Space Talk. All right. So I wanted to uh, chat with you guys about this new discovery of uh, this giant jet that came out of a pulsar. And I was reading about this in Sky and Telescope magazine. So if you guys read about this too, you probably already know a bit. Um, but pulsars are very fascinating. Um, and the reason I would say that is because they are um, very tiny, tiny objects. Uh, just yeah, like much smaller than Earth, but imagine taking all the mass of Earth and squishing it down to the size of like Manhattan Island. So if anyone's been to Manhattan in New York, just imagine that. And this specific pulsar is exactly that, actually. It's, it's, it was compared to kind of the size of Boston. So Boston, Massachusetts. It's about a 12-mile-long uh, size. So it's, it's sphere. It's about 12 miles long in its diameter. Uh, this is a very, very small object, but it has just as much mass as the entire Earth. So to kind of comprehend that density, uh, it's like really squishing everything down, all that matter that makes up the planet, all the, all the rocks and trees and mountains and, and people and ocean and fish and everything, and making that the size of a tiny, tiny island uh, or borough of New York City. That is a lot of power and a lot of a lot of density, and and pulsars are pulsating neutron stars. Usually, how um, I'll refer to it. Usually, how a lot of people tend to refer to it. Um, and a neutron star is this very dense star, super super dense. Um, but a pulsar is just like what it sounds like. It's pulsing out radio and X-ray emissions from its poles. Uh, this is kind of similar to a magnetar. A magnetar is sort of like the next level up from a pulsar. It's really, really high uh, magnetic, really high magnetic field. Uh, this is because of what's happening within the core and it's squishing together um, just like electrons and charged energy that is then being shot out through its poles. So with a pulsar, very similar. It has kind of like a phaser blast. So imagine like a Star Trek phaser, phaser gun. Um, it's shooting out really high amounts of energy. And this can usually be detected. Um, and it was detected. And what was fascinating about this is the size of this blast and just how big it was. 
so, so a little bit of uh, kind of, I guess, rundown. I actually decided to handwrite my notes today on this, this thing. Um, also, I'm hoping that the audio sounds a little bit better. I just set up some pretty cool purple and black sound foam. So if you guys hear better audio, go ahead and maybe just send me an emoji so that I know that. Um, so this pulsar is known as PSR, which is usually the first few letters of what a pulsar is named. J2030 plus 4415. It spins about three times per second, and it's approximately 1,630 light years away from us. And so uh, the observers who were observing it through Stanford University, uh, they noticed this very thin straight line of X-ray emission. And if you guys have like, want to check out the photo of this, I really recommend checking it out. Um, the pictures look incredible. Uh, the photos were, were taken, there's visible light images that were taken by the Gemini Observatory or Gemini Telescope, which is in Hawaii. Um, and let's see, this was actually at the, uh, yeah, Mauna Kea in Hawaii. But then there was also the X-ray telescope used, which is the Chandra X-ray Observatory. And this was what was first used to discover this blast coming out of the pulsar was the space telescope. The Chandra X-ray Observatory is uh, part, part of NASA. It was launched by NASA. Um, and it also is partnered with uh, NSF, the National Science Foundation, as well as, um, of course, you know Stanford University, who took part in this, this uh, observation. And they noticed a really high amount of X-ray emissions coming from it. And to give you, I guess, a little bit of perspective, just how big it was, it was about seven light years in length or 15 arc minutes. Now, I did a whole breakdown trying to like just rebrief myself on arc minutes because it's been a very long time since I've even used the arc minutes for anything. Basically, when you are looking at things in space, like take our moon, for example, or the sun, the way that it looks to us, if you were to draw a line from our eyes here on Earth to the top of the moon and then a line from our eyes to the bottom of the moon, it would create an angle. And then depending on how many degrees make up that angle, remember we learned about degrees with like if you use your pinky, that's about one degree when it comes to the perspective of things in space from the surface of Earth. However many degrees make up that arc would then tell you what the size of the arc is and how many arc minutes it is. Now, this would tell you usually, so it's about 0 0.5 degrees, talking about degree right now, um, of, of what the, the distance is for the sun as well as the moon. And that's really small. It's half a, that's half a one degree, right? That's really, really tiny. So what do you do for a star or an object that is much further away than the moon or our sun? It looks teeny, teeny, tiny to our eyes. This is when um, arc minutes come in. So you split that area up into 60 tiny little sections, and then those are the arc minutes. So one arc minute is one over 60 degrees, and this is because it is over an entire, one degree is one over 360, which is a full circle. So you're looking at it in the perspective of a full circle. I'm going to end there just because it's a lot easier to describe this visually. So if you wanted to do a little bit more Googling on it, I highly recommend it. Just found a really great YouTube video of a professor describing it. I'm going to pull it up right now just so that you guys have it. It is, uh, if you type this into YouTube, Astronomy Chapter 1, Introduction 
7 of 10, How to Measure Angular Size. Uh, really, really great demo. Um, this was by Michael Van Beesen, and this was talking about Arc Minutes. So highly recommend checking that out. But with all that being said, what does this mean? So seven light years of a stretch of this, this phaser beam that came from this pulsar. And this pulsar is only about 10 miles across in size. So relatively speaking, if we had a filament that went from New York to LA, the size of the pulsar would be a hundred times smaller than the tiniest object that we can see with the naked eye or the unaided eye. So take the object that you could see, you could you still see without needing a microscope, the tiniest, tiniest object, and then make it a hundred times smaller than that. That would be the size of the pulsar that emitted a pulse stretching from New York to LA. So this is why it's so exciting and such a big deal because, um, I think pulsars are still very much, uh, areas in astrophysics that can probably use quite quite a lot of research still quite a lot of uh analyses as well because they they have this very strange phenomena where they are emitting high amounts of energy um and i get the question a lot from people of like huh this makes me think could we use this energy here on earth and that's where my mind usually goes is is in the direction of optimism where i'm like you know what maybe one day we can maybe one day we'll be able to like have the technology where we can, um, where we can maybe be able to utilize this energy that comes from a pulsar, convert it into something we could use like voltage here on earth. And yeah, maybe, maybe it's possible, which would be very exciting. So there's going to be quite a lot more research done. I would say on this specific pulsar, uh, like I mentioned, the images that come back from it are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, one of the images shows the pulsar beam shooting through a, an ionization front. So what this is, is there is an area just outside the pulsar that the hydrogen atoms became ionized. What that means is the energy from the pulsar was powerful enough that it caused the hydrogen's electrons to be stripped from it making hydrogen too. This is ionized hydrogen. So very, very exciting. Uh, this picture looks absolutely crazy. Uh, also, this is something that happens a lot in space when it comes to ionization fronts or uh, what they, they also called it a bow shock. And I know about these terms because of protoplanetary disks. So when you have a newborn star forming, if there are other stars around it that are maybe very, very powerful, very massive, giving off lots of radiation, they could cause the atoms around that newborn star or any type of accretion, any type of materials that are circling around it to become ionized, causing this one area, the one closest to wherever that big star is that's giving off the radiation to become ionized and to uh, emit this kind of like glow. You could see it looks a little bit different than the other areas of say the, all the uh, material that's around the star. And this is what you also see in this picture. It's really cool. It's a close-up image of the pulsar, pulsar shown in X-ray. So it's glowing blue and then the energetic particles around it. Uh, and then the ionized hydrogen is in visible light. So it's in red. So again, really, really cool picture. Uh, definitely recommend looking at it. 
Then there was another image taken of the seven light year long pulse that came from this pulsar. And this one was taken um, by, let's see, this one was the visible one. So this one was taken by the Gemini telescope at Mauna Kea in Hawaii or Mauna Kea, Mauna Kea, I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, so let's see. Yeah, really, really interesting. It's about one and a half times the mass of the sun. So that's, that's huge. <laughs> that's actually much bigger than I thought. I, I had, I guess I had misread this earlier. I thought it was the mass of, of the earth. So it's about, so yeah, the pulsar itself is like a bullet that weighs about one and a half times the mass of the sun. So it didn't feel the density increase at all. It caught up and punched through the stalled bow shock and kept going. This was a quote from Romani, who was one of the researchers on this, uh, this project or this specific um, discovery. And yeah, really um, pretty, pretty crazy. So I'm going to go ahead and open up the, the calls to anyone who might want to call in and ask any questions. Let's go ahead and open that up. So, and while we do that, if anyone wants to call in, many, maybe either, you know, any comments, any questions, let me know. I'm going to check through my notes, see if there's anything else I wanted to mention. And let's see. Yep. Mainly just the arc minutes. All right. But yeah, I think pulsars uh, could also be used probably to help detect distances in space. Uh, anytime there's some kind of movement in space, like so a pulsar, it's spinning and it's kind of like a lighthouse. Imagine how a lighthouse is spinning and it's shooting off a beam of light and it crosses your path every now and then. Very similar with a pulsar. In fact, the very first pulsar uh, that was discovered Astronomers thought it was um, possibly aliens that were trying to contact um, us humans here on Earth, and they called it LGM-1, or Little Green Men 1. So uh, now they all just go by PSR for Pulsar, um, and then some crazy number afterwards, which is usually just the, the numerical uh, kind of, uh, like I guess, in order of when it was discovered. So whatever was before it, uh, was the number that was prior, and now it just sort of continues. So yeah, one, one more thing about this article I actually did not mention yet is it says that uh, something like this could actually help explain antimatter, how antimatter can escape and spread through the galaxy. Here's another quote from the head researcher, Romani. Uh, they say, we can already see that the filaments spread with distance spread with distance from the pulsar. It's certainly pulsars are more prosaic, or a more prosaic explanation for the AMS or antimatter positrons than dark matter annihilation. Granted, observations of such breakthrough events are rare, but it's only the fourth pulsar known to have produced a long, narrow filament. But that may be because these events are so brief, they may have occurred throughout our galaxy's history. So if you're going to maybe call in and ask about antimatter, um, I'm going to just warn you now or give you a heads up now. I do not know too much about antimatter, so I actually would brief myself on that. It talks about kind of how electrons and positrons, so positrons leave are the, are the antimatter to electrons, how they can escape from their parent pulsar, and uh, that it talks about um, how this can be observed from Earth and maybe other types of pulsar filaments can be discovered too. So the pulsar filament, kind of like the, the, I 
from what from what I gather, same way of saying the jet that's coming from the pulsar, it's usually that long streak that spreads all throughout space as it continues to move throughout the cosmos. So very interesting thing. I'd say anything that probably came in its path, it, it might have affected it. I'm not quite sure about that. Anything that was near it uh, sounds like this this object is very powerful, and so it will be really powerfully affecting anything around it, especially if uh, the energy coming from it is ionizing hydrogen. Um, so good luck to anything else that is around it. Alrighty, so since it looks like I don't have any callers coming in, let's go ahead and head to astronomy picture of the day to sort of wrap up today's episode. And this is, well, this looks pretty uh, impressive. So as soon as I open it up, it is a 360 view of the sky. It looks like the Aurora Borealis. And then there is a person standing on the snow with a camera pointing up to the sky above. It says a whale of an Aurora over a Swedish forest. So it says a large coronal mass ejection occurred in our, on our sun earlier this month, throwing a cloud of fast moving electrons, protons, and ions towards the earth. Part of this cloud impacted our Earth's magnetosphere and bolstered a sudden gap resulting in a spectacular auroras being seen from high northern latitudes. We've spoken about aurora borealis before and how um, that interaction happens when you have you know, charged particles that can come from the sun through something like a coronal mass ejection. Uh, this, this material, this literal mass and uh, charged energy can interfere with our uh, magnetosphere, which is that electromagnetic field around Earth. This is what helps trap in our atmosphere and protects all of us from very harsh radiation from the sun. Also, uh, this is, when these things happen, astronauts in the International Space Station have to kind of uh, be, be aware and be weary of and conscious of kind of what's going on so, so that hopefully they don't get... Um, you know, damaged or, or, or harmed in any way or nothing from the space station or any type of satellites can get damaged because that could happen as well. And yeah, so this is a really cool, uh, looks like uh, Aurora Borealis. It's green. So this is what is combining uh, the electro, the, sorry, the coronal mass ejection. So the energy coming from the sun, that mass coming from the sun is interacting with oxygen within our atmosphere. And that's what causes that kind of greenish color. Um, Aurora Borealis can also look kind of purplish. They can also look kind of pinkish. Uh, that's usually with nitrogen uh, and other types of elements too that can sometimes be, be present. And that is our astronomy picture of the day. All righty. Let's see. So they, they used to be able to have it where you could go ahead and check out the, the next photo, but it doesn't look like they allow that anymore. So with all that being said, um, I hope you guys get to go ahead and check out this really cool discovery of this jet that came from the pulsar from what we just read. Only about four other pulsars um, have emitted such large jets, large filaments in the past that have been discovered. Uh, might mean that maybe it's a rare event. Might also mean that it might have just not been in our line of sight. We might have not caught it. Might have not been able to see it, or we might have just not simply not been looking in the sky in that during that time of, of when it happened. So that's the, the tricky part about astronomy and doing observations is uh, sometimes if you are observing when things are not going on, um, you might you might miss something. 
you know, they think things might not always cross paths at this at the proper proper time. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and do a short music break, and then we will go ahead and wrap up today's episode. Alrighty, just before we wrap a few upcoming episodes to let you all know about to look forward to, we've got tomorrow, we're going to be chatting about how space objects are named. Uh, we don't have many space objects left, so this might be one of the final episodes of how space objects are named. We've spoken about um, galaxies, nebulae, comets, asteroids, planets, stars, constellations, and uh, tomorrow is to be determined, and that's because I haven't thought of it just yet, So, because there's so many space objects out there. And then on Thursday, we've got what today was originally supposed to be for, which is what space parties are happening in Los Angeles, California, and that is because there are always different events happening in Los Angeles. And so we just talked about Austin, Texas. That's because I'm here, so I'm, I'm very well aware of what's going on currently. Um, also, previously, LA, I just happen to know it very well, so this is why I'm sharing it. After that, it's probably going to also be New York, and that's also just because personal experience. I've been there. I kind of know some some things that might be going on. But after that, I'd love to do other cities around the world. So if you have a request for any types of – when I say space party, I'm referring to like you know, maybe maybe a star party where people get together through an astronomy club, bring their telescopes, and you could meet, you know, fellow astronomy peers and look up at the sky, or you could go to a museum. Museum has, you know, museums have um, like space events all the time. Coming up soon is the World Space Week, the World Science Festival. There are tons of things like this that are just happening in several different places um, around our globe. So just kind of, uh, yeah, keep that in mind. If you ever want to socialize with um, other people that maybe have a, a similar interest as you, since you're all here listening to Space Talk, I can assume that you all like space <laughs> and astronomy. And so um, there are tons of events like this. I actually had created something called Space Globe a while ago. I, I actually took it down just when I changed my, my website. Um, and that was basically looking at places around the world. Maybe I'll revisit it and, and create it again. I think I still have the software. And then lastly, next week uh, is a short week for March. So we've got uh, on Tuesday, we have our special guest, Dr. Kirby Runyon, who's going to be coming on. Uh, Kirby Runyon, he is a good friend of mine. We met each other um, on Capitol Hill uh, during a Planetary Society. Uh, it was like a, a congressional blitz. So what we did was we uh, trained with NASA for the day and then spoke to representatives from, at Congress and uh, the Senate about the NASA bill and what we think is important, what missions should be funded and what programs should be funded. And that is how we met. And so uh, he is doing incredible research, doing stuff now with the zero G flights is um, I did I've done research for the sand dunes on Mars. He is really passionate about Titan. I think he's done research about Titan too. Saturn's one of Saturn's largest moons. Um, and what else? Uh, 
When we talk about Pluto, it always gets really interesting and fun because he's a planetary geologist, so it does not necessarily agree with the International Astronomical Union with saying that it, it is, you know, not considered a planet because it is a planet, it's just a dwarf planet. And what that what does that mean for our perspective of the cosmos, uh, especially when teaching that to youngsters and little kiddos? So anyway, so all that being said, I think it's gonna be a really fun interview. That's going to be that was rescheduled to next Tuesday at 6:30 p.m. Central Time. It's probably gonna go pretty long, so just be prepared for that. And then lastly, the last thing I have scheduled for now is um, what launches are happening in April. That's gonna be on March 30th, just so that you all have a heads up in case you want to do any travels. And with that being said, I am coming close to my trip that I'm planning to go to Starbase. So down in Boca Chica, Texas. Um, very, very excited about that. I think that's going to be super, super fun. Uh, and what I do that, um, I might go live. It depends. I know that in May is when they're planning to actually do a test launch uh, or an orbital, orbital flight of a Starship. So that's going to be really exciting. I think right now, fingers crossed, the goal is May. So when that happens, uh, I think that'll be very exciting. Hopefully I get to be there. Hopefully you guys get to be there. And let's see if there is anything else here to share with you all. Seems like that's about it. Um, I'm heading out now because I, if you guys want to join, I'm going to be doing uh, two more hours after this of live streams on Dexter TV. So if you guys want to join that, the first one is going to be actually painting a pulsar. So it might be a little bit repetitive as we're going to be talking about today, today's discovery we're talking about just now. Uh, but that's more also targeted a little bit younger, about ages, you know, probably three to seven. You guys might not want to join for that one unless you want to paint. Uh, we are going to be painting and learning about pulsars. And then after that, we're going to be kind of reviewing sort of these discoveries, also talking about an exoplanet that was recently discovered, classified as a super puff. Uh, you guys might have already been there for that episode. So if you have, you would have uh, already known a lot about that discovery. Uh, but otherwise, um, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. I will talk to you all tomorrow. Make sure you tune in for tomorrow's episode at 3 p.m. Central Time. Alrighty, guys, have a wonderful rest of your evening. Please get outside, look up at the sky, explore the stars above, and as always, add Astra.